Well, good morning, church. It's uh, wonderful to see you. Ecclesiastes chapter 9 in your Bible. It's probably opening naturally to that place, uh, that book uh, by now. I trust you've been enjoying uh, walking through God's Word together, although it be with uh, uh, different preachers every week. I I know you're ready to get your pastor back, uh, but thank you uh, for uh, giving him a season of rest and break. There's a lot of churches that don't care for their pastors like that, and I commend you for that and thank you uh, for, for doing that. Ecclesiastes chapter 9, my assignment this morning is to call our attention to verses 1 through 12. Solomon is uh, considered by many to be the human author uh, of this book, but he's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So regardless of whether it's him or another writer, that makes this God's word for us, and we have the opportunity Uh, to hear the voice of God uh, today. So let me read God's word over you. Ecclesiastes chapter 9, beginning with verse 1. But all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it's love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. It is the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner, and he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Also, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil and madness is in their hearts while they live and after that they go to the dead. But he who is joined with all the living has hope for a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know what they, uh, that, that they will die, but the dead know nothing and they have no more reward for the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished and forever they have no more share in that that is done under the sun. Go, eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love. All the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun. Because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. For there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. Again, I say that under the sun, the race is not for the swift, nor the battle for the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but but time and chance happen to them all. For man does not know his time, like fish that are taken in an evil net, and like the birds that are caught in a snare. 
So the children of man are snared at any evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. Well, that's pretty encouraging, isn't it? (laughs) Sometimes we come to places in the word of God where we, we find ourselves longing for a better ending, don't we? Well, I think there's a better ending to what's said here, but it's, it's not readily evident in the words of this human author. Most of us are familiar with the phrase barking up the wrong tree. Phrase is an English idiom that um, reflects a vain pursuit, thinking wrongly about something or pursuing something that you're, you're never going to find. You may or may not know the history of it. It actually comes from uh, the idea of hunters who are hunting a prey with a pack of dogs. How the, the dogs oftentimes can, can tree the prey, uh, but not realize that uh, the prey has, has up in the trees moved from the top of one tree to the top of another tree. And yet the, the dogs continue to, to bark at the bottom up the wrong tree. Consequently, the idea of pursuing something that is not there, thinking wrongly about something. It's, it's one thing, beloved, listen to me, to do that with something as trivial as being on a honey trip. It's an entirely different thing to do that with life. But you see, the reality is there are lots of people that are pursuing things as significant, as important as, listen to me, truth, meaning, and purpose, and fulfillment in life. It's one thing to do that with a hunting trip. It's an entirely different thing to do that with something as significant, as important as the pursuit of truth, the pursuit of, of meaning, the pursuit of purpose, the pursuit of fulfillment in life. It's an entirely different thing to be barking up the wrong tree. But in this passage of scripture, The author of Ecclesiastes tells us that that is exactly what uh, many people do in this life. They find themselves in a vain pursuit. They find themselves chasing after something that they'll never be able to find. An empty endeavor. And basically in his words in these first 12 verses here... The author calls our attention to the reality that that these are all pursuits that end in nothing. They end in emptiness. They end in spending your entire life looking for something that you're never going to be able to find, chasing after something that isn't there, barking up the wrong tree. But yet, in this passage of Scripture, I think in its place, not just in the book of Ecclesiastes, but in the Old Testament at large, there is a message of hope for us. I'm going to show that to you before we leave this passage of Scripture. And that is in the midst, 
in the midst of the chaos and instability and uncertainty of life, Jesus Christ gives us hope. He gives us truth. He gives us meaning. He gives us fulfillment. He gives us purpose. In the gospel of Jesus Christ, we find those things. I think verse 1 in this passage of Scripture gives us a start with that, a hint at it. It's a difficult verse to translate, but I think I could summarize it for you this way. And that is that, listen to me very carefully, God is in control, and let's not forget that. But basically, mankind is in for chaos. Let me say it again. God's in control, but mankind is in for chaos. Maybe another way to say it is God's in control, but man is in for a lifetime of barking up the wrong tree. If you look at it in verse 1, the author says, but all of this I had I laid to heart examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. There's the control. God's in control. But he then says, whether it's love or hate, or another way to say that is good or evil, man does not know. And listen to this phrase at the end of verse 1, both are before him. Both are going to be part of his pursuits. And so, the author of Ecclesiastes here identifies, I think knowingly, uh, three realities in life that speak to mankind's vain pursuit, barking up a wrong tree. I'm going to show you a fourth one that I think is implicit in this passage of Scripture in its role in the larger canon of Scripture. So, here's the first one. Death is unavoidable. Death is unavoidable. In verses 2 through, uh, down through about verse 6, the theme of this, the, the, this section of this passage is that there, there basically the implication is that there are people, and this is most of us, if not all of us, that do everything we can to avoid death, even in Christian circles. We don't even like to use the term. We would rather use terms like, well, you know, you know, mama or daddy has gone on to be with the Lord, or they've passed away, uh, or they've been laid to rest, but we're afraid to use the term death because we don't like to think of its reality. And a lot of times in this life, people are seeking to avoid death in every way possible. We want to put it off as long as we possibly can. We don't want to talk about it. We don't want to think about it. We don't want to entertain any ideas, you know, of its reality. I mean, think about it. Some of you folks that are like me and are, you know, getting on up there in years, uh, our, our mind plays tricks on us. I, I don't know if yours does this or not, but, you know, when I look in a mirror in the morning, you know what I see? I see an 18-year-old Jim Shaddix. I think that's the way I look. All right, and I'm, I'm glad for that. Not getting any older, not getting any close to death. And then I see a picture that somebody's taken of me and my family. And I think, oh my, that's reality. Facts don't care about my feelings and they don't play tricks on, you know, like my mind plays on it. I want to do everything I can 
to, to push this aside, to set it aside, to, 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 to ignore it and to think it's not happening. But the author of Ecclesiastes here in verses two through six, he's making basically one point, And that is not gonna be anything you can do. Outside of Jesus coming again and snatching us out of here, there's not gonna be anything you can do to avoid death. Notice in verse two, he references the same event happening to the righteous and the unrighteous. Look down at verse three. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun that the same event happens to all. And if you're wondering what that event is, look down at the end of verse three, and after that, they go to the dead. That's what's going on in this first set of verses right here. He's simply making the point that you're not going to avoid death. But you understand that there are many people, and probably most of us in some respect, that we, we think we can avoid it. We, we, we don't think about it when we're young. It doesn't matter what people tell us about the aging process or anything else. We, we just don't see that. We see ourselves as immortal. And some of us live our lives on the edge thinking that that could never happen to us. And the author of Ecclesiastes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit comes and he says, you're barking up the wrong tree. You're barking up the wrong tree when you, when you consider yourself to be immortal because death is unavoidable. And he says some things here that may surprise us. He says death is unavoidable regardless of spiritual health. You see, I know what some of us are thinking here this morning. We're believers in Jesus Christ. We've, we've trusted the Lord. We know the bigger picture out there. We can build an argument theologically for our immortality in, in that sense. But remember, the author of Ecclesiastes is looking at the human plight. He's looking at the journey in this world. And he basically says, it doesn't matter if you're a Christian or a non-Christian, you're going to die. It doesn't matter how spiritual you are. Look at all of the things that he mentions here, beginning in verse two. Same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner, and he who swears is he who shuns an oath. Doesn't matter how religious you are, no matter how spiritual you are, and if I could be so bold as to say it, it doesn't matter if you're a Christian or not a Christian this morning, you're gonna die. This, this is what the author of Ecclesiastes is, is saying. Death is unavoidable. It's unavoidable regardless of spiritual health. And then he really makes another point, and that is that death is, is, is unavoidable regardless of short-term hope. You know, there is a short-term hope, and you know who has that? people that are still alive. Notice what he says down in verse four, but he who is joined with all the living has hope for a living dog is better than a dead lion for the living know that they will die, but the dead don't know anything. They have no more reward for the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished and forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. You understand he's not talking about whether you're a Christian or not Christian. He's not, he's not contrasting those two things. He's just simply saying, you know, at least the people that are alive, you know, they still can look positively at things. 
They can still, you know, uh, enjoy their family. They can still pursue a career. They can still, you know, try to stay healthy in their bodies. At least they've got that going for them. But when you're dead, it, you, you don't have any of that. Yeah, I, I remember when I went to my second church that I pastored, I, I, I went with not a lot of, uh, you know, of experience doing funerals. I, we had planted a church in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. It was predominantly young couples. I was there for about eight and a half years, just didn't do a lot of funerals. So I didn't, I didn't have a lot of experience. And so I had never heard the term wake before. Are y'all familiar with the wake? wake? Y'all do wakes up here? You know, I, in, in, in Texas, where I pastored, we just called it visitation, okay? And that was where, you know, it was a time usually at the funeral home and, you know, the casket was there, the family was there, and people came by and paid their respects. And this, you know, maybe a day or so before the funeral. Well, you know, in, in the, the, the southern regions, you know, down New Orleans and, you know, in that, that whole area down there, they, they refer to that as a wake and it's a bigger event, uh, I mean, you know, yes, people come pay their respects, and sometimes it's at the funeral home, sometimes at a church, and 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 the coffin usually is, you know, is there. But man, some of those folks make a party out of it. I mean, it's just like a big deal, you know. Well, I didn't know any of this; never heard that term used like that before. So I so I, I moved to a pastorate about sixty miles from New Orleans, and uh, uh, and and I got experienced uh, with funerals really quick. My moving van pulled in on Tuesday. The chairman of the deacon's wife passed away of a heart attack suddenly on Friday. I remember going to the hospital, ministering to uh, the, the family and, and the husband of this lady. And then I, I, I got back in my Jeep and I went back to the church and I had no more got in, you know, uh, to the door of my office when the secretary came out and she told me about one of our other adult leaders who had a relative that had passed away. So I jumped back in my truck and I went over to that guy's house and I prayed with the family and encouraged them a little bit. And, and then after a little bit, me and this adult leader, we walked out of the house, walked out to my vehicle and we started talking about the chairman of the deacon's wife passed. And then he looks at me and he says, when are they going to wake her? Now you remember the part about me never hearing that term before, right? And used in that context. He says, when are they going to wake her? Now I immediately, I wasn't very smart, still not, but I was smart enough to know there's something I don't know here. So I wanted to be careful about what I said, but I remember as clear as I'm standing here today, what I was thinking, I was thinking, man, you don't understand. They're not going to wake her. And if they do, I'm going back to Texas. I mean, it was, uh... You know, when, when people are dead, they don't have hopes, they don't have dreams, they don't have plans, they don't have desires. And the author of, of Hebrews is simply saying, and, and listen to this very carefully, he's saying at least in the short term, people that are still alive can experience those kind of things. But he's not really speaking a word of hope here. He's still saying this in the context of the reality that look, the wicked and the good are still going to experience the same thing. And it's regardless of spiritual health and it's regardless of short-term hope, if you're still living and you can experience those, some of those things, if you think that somehow 
you are immortal or you're going to be able to delay this beyond the control of God or you're going to be able to skirt around it. You are barking up the wrong tree. So he speaks to this issue of the pursuit basically of immortality or maybe at least putting off, delaying in some way death. Death is unavoidable. Second thing he says is pleasure is unsustainable. Pleasure is unsustainable. Death is unavoidable, but the pursuit of pleasure in this life is also unsustainable. That's what you've got in verses 7 through 10. He basically here gives a word of exhortation, encouragement, that almost thinks, makes you think, man, he's, now he's seeing it. I mean, th- these verses have actually been called the carpe diem passage of Scripture. You know what that means? Seize the day. It's as if the author is coming, you know, and he's saying, and he is in some respects, and he's saying, okay, if you're in that category of being still alive, make the most of it. And he basically identifies three areas of life. These are only examples. They're not the only things out there, but he's making a point. And that is, he says, enjoy your meals. I'm glad that's in the Bible. I, I like to eat. My wife has the gift of kitchen, and I have the gift of eating kitchen. And so when I see verse 7, I think, yes, you know, look at what he says. Go, eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God's already approved what you do. God's given you this. He's, he's provided this for you. And so basically, he says, enjoy your food. Enjoy your meals. Not only that, he says, enjoy your merrymaking. Enjoy your, your, your festivities. In verse 8, let your garments be always white. White would have been the clothing of celebration. It would have been the clothing of, of a party. It would have been a clothing of, of, of getting together and rejoicing, of holiday, of vacation, of getting together with friends. Verse 8, let your garments be always with white. Let not oil be lacking on your hair. Comb your hair, he says. You know, shampoo your hair. You know, fix yourself. You know, take opportunity for this right here. Now, he, he's not... He's not speaking about these things in some, you know, uncorked, unrestricted way of, hey, go for the gusto in life, no rules, no holes barred, just let, let it all hang out and go. No, that's not what he's saying. I mean, if you look at the end of verse 7 right there, God's already approved what you do. He's talking about things that God gives us. He's talking about gifts, and so he's looking at this idea of, of merrymaking, of celebration. Enjoy your holidays with your family. Get together with friends, he says. Make the most of, of the relationships that you have. Today's Father's Day. Celebrate Father's Day. Celebrate that with your family. Get together and have a good time he says, he says, enjoy your meals, enjoy merrymaking, and he says, enjoy your marriage. This is another, you know, another place where we know that he's, he's not just, this is not just, you know, anything goes kind of thing. He speaks here. It would have been good if Solomon is the author, had he taken his own advice at this point. But he says in verse 9, enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. 
He says, make the most of your marriage. Pursue a good marriage, a good relationship, and enjoy that relationship. Breaks my heart, the number of couples that I run across, even Christian couples that are just existing. Maybe they've been at it for so long, or maybe they got a rough start, but they seem to be just existing. My wife and I look at that sometimes, we think, man, we've been so blessed. And so blessed the fact that we still enjoy one another. We still are thrilled with being together. And, 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 and we want to pursue that. It doesn't mean we have a perfect marriage. It just means I'm thankful to God for the reality of enjoying this. And this is what the, the author is doing here. He's saying, enjoy your meals. Enjoy merrymaking. Enjoy your marriage. But... His point is, do this while you have a chance to do it because it's not going to last. How do we know that? Look at verse 10. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. For there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. You see, he brings this right back down to earth. And his point is simply this. Yes, make the most of the time you have, the things that you have, the gifts of, that God has given you. Pursue that and enjoy those things, but enjoy them while you have a chance to do it because that pleasure is not sustainable. It's not sustainable. And essentially, the author of Ecclesiastes comes back and he says, if you are pursuing pleasure in this life and that is in game for you, you're barking up the wrong tree because pleasure is not sustainable. Death is unavoidable. Pleasure is unsustainable. And then there's one more and that is life is unpredictable. Life is unpredictable. Let me show you some summary phrases. Look at the end of verse 11. Time and chance happen to them all. Beginning of verse 12, man does not know his time. And he's not specifically thinking about death at that, though certainly that could be included in it. Look at the end of verse 12. The children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. What's he talking about? He's talking about the chaos of life. He's talking about the unpredictability of this journey that we're on in life. Now, he's already put everybody on a level playing field. He's already said, regardless of spiritual conditions, death is unavoidable. He's continuing that same thought in every one of these. In every one of these, level playing field, including this one right here, and that is life is chaotic. Life is unpredictable. And if you are pursuing, and I am pursuing complete control as if we could eliminate all of the chaos, we are barking up the wrong tree. He basically says two things about the unpredictability of life, and these may surprise some of you. First of all, he says, life is unfair. Life is unfair. Notice in verse 11, he says, 
under the sun. The race is not to the swift, translated. The fastest runner doesn't always win. The battle not to the strong, the strongest and the most powerful army doesn't always win or, or, or the, the, the strongest, most skilled boxer doesn't always win the match. Nor bread to the wise. The smartest people are not always the ones that, that, that receive, the, you know, receive the reward and the benefits of their toil, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge. Have you ever read any about um, just, the, just some people that most of us would, would know about that never finished college? It's kind of a surprising you know, list. Steve Jobs literally changed the world. He did. Changed your world, changed my world. Didn't finish college. Mark Zuckerberg, founder of Facebook. Joel Osteen, maybe one of the most popular preachers of the day with one of the largest churches. Tiger Woods, Bill Gates, Brad Pitt, Ralph Lauren. Two presidents, William McKinley, Harry S. Truman, never finished college, Ted Turner. And on and on we could go. I'm talking to a group of people out here where there's probably quite a few educated folks sitting out here. Some of you have multiple degrees. You spend a lot of time. You spend a lot of money, a lot of energy pursuing education. You know, it's real easy to look at a list like that, and that list goes on and on. And think, well, wait a second. That's just not fair. <laughs> That's just not fair. Look at all this. And yeah, you know, I have a job or maybe, maybe some of us don't. And, you know, but others say I got a job, but it's not making what those guys are making. You can see this in the athletic world. I read an article the other day about the, you know, the top 50 Cinderella teams. And at the top of everybody's list was a 1980 U.S. hockey uh, gold medal winning team. It defeated Russia. Cinderella team. They shouldn't have been able to do it. Skill, experience, no way. But they did. And we rejoice in that. We like, to, we like to hear those stories, don't we? But, but then sometimes we, we see ourselves on the other side of the fence. I've paid the price. I got the education. You know, I, I've done this. I've done that. Or, or we read the article about, you know, about the, the guy that's murdered and raped, you know, uh, all these people getting to walk free. You think, wait, what a second. Wait a second. That... That's not right. That's not fair. We see the injustice in this world. Things that where everybody is not treated with, with equity, regardless of whether it's, it's a race issue or, or a, a, a demographic issue, a financial issue. We look at life many times and it's just not fair. And not only does he say it's not fair, he says it's not safe. This life is not safe. Notice verse 12, man doesn't know his time. Like fish that are taken in an evil net, like birds that are caught in a snare, so the children of men are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls on them. You know, we'd like to believe, don't we, that Bad things only happen to bad people. Bad things don't happen to good people. Good things don't happen to bad people. Good things happen to good people. But all of us are keenly aware in this life that sometimes good things happen to bad people and bad things happen to good people. 
And so you can serve the Lord, raising your family in his nurture and admonition, doing your best to be a testimony to him, living on mission, leveraging your life for the sake of the gospel. And then cancer reaches up and grabs you or the death of a child or a spouse that walks out. And on and on we could go that all of us, if we've not experienced them, we've seen them. Happen to good Christian people. Why? Because the author of Ecclesiastes says, life is unpredictable, no matter who you are. No matter where you've been, no matter how smart you are, what degree of education, you can't always map it out. And you will always find yourself at some points in life saying, I had this going differently in my mind. I saw this happening differently. Life is unpredictable. Well, if we ended right there, Seems hopeless, doesn't it? And probably there's a part of some of us in the room today or watching online that, that, that are believers in Jesus Christ and, and we, know, we know the reality that, that's, that that's not the whole story. There ought to be some things in this text that would give us pause. I mean, even going back to verse one, right? Deeds are in the hand of God. He's in control. We rest in that. Even that statement down there in, you know, in verse 10, when, 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 when the author says, you know, there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in shield to which you're going, I want to say, wait a second, Shaddix, there's, there's more to the story, and there is. Or even that, the, the, those verses down there that talk about the hope in, in those that, 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 that are still living, they have at least an opportunity to change some things or to do some things which dead people don't have the opportunity to, you know, to do anymore. We could look at that verse right there and it ought to give us pause. It ought to give us pause because there's one, one more truth that we have to understand in this context and that is Jesus is dependable and I want you to have that on your list and I'm going to show it to you I want you to understand that death is unavoidable pleasure is unsustainable life is unpredictable all of those are realities however Jesus and his gospel are completely dependable I want you to think about this from the standpoint of where this passage in this book is in the canon of Scripture. T turn back to the table of contents in your Bible for a second. Anybody ever preach from the table of contents? Probably don't want to spend a lot of time there, but maybe it could help us with this. You ever thought about the Old Testament from a big picture standpoint? I mean, just look at your table of contents. First five books, the books of the law, you get to the end of those books and you know what? Is, Israel is still looking for the ultimate lawgiver, the one who would write his law on our hearts. You get to the book of Joshua, you get to the end of it. Israel is still looking for a promised land greater than the one that they had inhabited. 
You get to the end of the book of Judges, all of those seemingly Bible heroes, which we don't think through a lot of times. What do you do? You get to the end of the book of Judges, and, 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 and what is Israel still looking for? They're looking for a righteous judge. Into the book of Ruth, and we're still looking for an ultimate redeemer, that kinsman redeemer. Samuel, Kings, and Chronicles, you get to the end. Israel is still looking for the Savior King. Ezra and Nehemiah still looking for a city whose builder and maker is God. Esther looking for that good news, the one who would be raised up, not just for a time such as that one, but for all time. Wisdom literature, looking for the ultimate manifestation of the wisdom of God. You get through those prophetic books, beginning with Isaiah all the way through Malachi, and Israel is still looking for the Messiah, the one that the voice of one crying in the wilderness would be saying, get ready for him. You understand that the whole of the Old Testament, including including the book of Ecclesiastes, is intended to leave us wanting for something else, for someone else. And while the author of Ecclesiastes didn't see that clearly, the fact that there is so much emptiness and vanity all the way through this book is intended for a purpose. And that is to lead us to the place where we are longing for someone to make sense out of death, out of the pursuit of pleasure, out of the unpredictability and the chaos of life. And there are many of you this morning that are sitting in the room that could raise your hand and say, I know, I know what it is. I know who it is. There are so many places I could take you in the New Testament to see this. I thought I would just read to you two passages of scripture that I know that most of you are very familiar with, not to spend time explaining these, but simply to read them and for us to hear them in contrast to what we've just studied. The the, the fact that death is unavoidable, pleasure is unsustainable, life is unpredictable. Listen, listen to what the New Testament says about what Jesus brings. Verse 31 of Romans chapter 8, just look at it on the screen. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Do you remember that first verse we looked at? God is in control. You remember that? If God's for us, who can be against us? He didn't spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us right now in life's unpredictability and death's unavoidability and pleasure's insustainability. He's interceding for us now. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it's written, for your sake, we're being killed all day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. 
no, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor death, nor anything else in the creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. It's good news, isn't it? 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul says this, verse 50, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot enter the kingdom of God, even if you could sustain life or pleasure. Physical things don't inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. We shall be, but we shall be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed for this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, the mortality puts on immortality, then shall it come to pass the saying that's written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he says this, Therefore, knowing that the people he's writing to are still living in a life where death is unavoidable, where pleasure is insustainable, and where life is unpredictable, he says, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. It's not barking up the wrong tree. When you pursue the gospel and you embrace the grace of God in Jesus' life and death and resurrection. You're barking up the right tree. And your labor, brother, sister in Christ, is not in vain. If you don't know him today, you've never truly repented of your sin, changed your mind about your sin, changed your mind about Jesus, and put your faith in him your trust, your complete life in his trust to do for you what nobody else can do. To give you the hope of eternal life even though death in this life is unavoidable. To give you the hope, not that it'll always come in this life, but the hope of pleasure in eternity, pleasure in him. And the hope of the most predictable thing in the universe, and that is that he can be trusted with your life, not just now, but forevermore. If you've never trusted him, please do that today. I appeal to you, right where you're seated, in your heart. Turn your heart to God, and in your own words, tell him that you are ready to trust Jesus as your Lord and as your Savior. Let me ask you to bow with me in prayer. At the end of our service, one of the pastors is going to give you some instructions about how you can connect with someone about questions or maybe just to let them know. Today's the day I'm trusting Jesus as my Lord and Savior. Lord, we worship you 
as the one who is in control in the midst of our chaos. We worship you as a God who is sovereign and as the God who has given us hope by sending your son to live a life we couldn't live and to die a death we should have died, but to be raised from the dead, to put your life back inside of us, a life that goes on forever. Thank you, Lord, for that. Don't ever let us get over that. We worship you as the God of the gospel, the God of our salvation, the God who gives us the right tree to bark up, to pursue. Thank you for that, Lord. For friends and family members that may be here today who've never in their heart of hearts trusted Jesus, we pray you'd give them courage and boldness like they've never had before. And you draw them to yourself today. Make this their day of salvation. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.